alright, alright, listen, relax, slow down, calm down, I know. I know what you're thinking, you're thinking, Jeremy, how did you get yourself an exoplaneteer on the podcast? You've only recorded 53 of these bad boys, well let me tell you something, it's real, it's happening, we're here today, together, me and you. Let's go, let's do it, 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 let's go. Welcome to Abstract, we are in the second year of the show, our guest today is none other than Lisa Dang. So Lisa, tell us a bit about yourself. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks Jeremy for having me on the show. So uh, my name is Lisa. I am a PhD candidate in physics at McGill University. And during my graduate studies, I was also holding a position at the NASA Spitzer Science Center in Caltech in Pasadena as a research scientist. So what I do is that I study the diversity of exoplanets and their climate with a variety of space telescopes most excitingly with the upcoming uh, James Webb Space Telescope. And what I'm hoping to do is understanding how planets form, uh, how they evolve, and ultimately uncover the recipe for uh, how do you build the habitable planets, for example. When I'm not busy, then I'm probably traveling or drawing at home and taking care of my plants. Awesome. I have some plants myself, and they do need caring, so they're lucky to have you. Yeah. <laughs> so f- first and foremost, I just want to get a sense of when you realized that you wanted to study the universe, and I mean, I know why you want to study the universe. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> but what was like the earliest age you wanted to study? And was there a time in your life, like when you were super young, that you wanted to be something else? Yeah, that's a very good question. So if you like imagine most astronomers, a lot of them would, will tell you that the first time that they thought about being an astronomer is probably when they were young and looked into a telescope for the first time. And for me, my interest in, in astrophysics and astronomy came from the physical side, or more like the mathematical side of thing. So for me, the interest in astronomy came much later. I was already in Sejep by then, and so I had already decided that I was good in science. Science was told to be, to be sort of like the opening door or, or the degree that opens a lot of doors. So I went into this, and I didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted to do when I was in Sejep. I was very clueless. I knew that I was good in math and physics, but beyond being good at it, I didn't see sort of like the importance of it. And towards the end of my degree in Sejep, so I went to Dawson College. Uh, yeah, Dawson. Yeah. So I took an astrophysics course. And for the first time, it was like physics told to me as a story. And it was sort of like the story of a universe or the story of a star, how they form and how they die. And, and I thought that was really beautiful. But not only it was beautiful, you could also explain it with equations. And these were equations that we were familiar with. So this is really when my spark for, for astrophysics came in my life. Interesting. So you really kind of enjoyed the, the union of the math, the physics, and the universe, everything coming together. Yeah. Even though it wasn't like, you know, most of physics that you imagine, I think for me, I mostly understand it from experience. So if it's something that I can uh, imagine happening and described by the physics that I'm learning, then I understand it better. But astrophysics is so out of the box and, and out of this world, really, <laughs> that for the first time, these equations make sense beyond the universe or like the world that I knew. How did you reconcile that? Like, was there a specific day that you remember thinking, uh-oh, I just got really interested in something that I don't really fully understand or comprehend? Uh, 
no, I, I don't think that I like, I don't think I sat down and went like, I don't understand it, but rather like, oh, I think the world is more simplified than we think it is, you know, like stars are just balls of things. Um, and they can be described with like, <laughs> they can be described with like very simple parameters, like how big they are, how massive they are. And it turns out that this is how a lot of physicists see the world. You see the world in like very simplified ways sometimes. Interesting. So I've actually never heard of an astrophysicist or any physicist talk about the universe as being simplistic. So this is definitely new to me. <laughs> no, uh, so, so, no it, it's not simplistic, but we, we try to make sense of it from simple models, or at least some sure. of us try. Okay, fair enough. So before you wanted to get into astrophysics, because you did say that that was kind of a late discovery, like what's your earliest memory of a career path that you wanted to follow? Oh, I mean, probably when I was like a child. So I'm a daughter of immigrants. And for a lot of immigrants who came here, you, they all wish their daughters or, or sons to be like doctors or engineers or some kind of like professional job that they knew. So I probably wanted to please my parents and like was heading towards med school or something. Up until at some point, I just thought that like math and physics was something that I was more compelled to in my courses. But I, I was probably headed toward med school up until like Sejep or something. I'm trying to think about like what the relationship would be between med school and studying exoplanets, and I'm I'm honestly just coming up empty. <laughs> They're like just completely different entirely. No, it's it's very like two end spectrum of like I don't know. You could say like life science. So in like medicine, you're probably studying or not studying. You're you're also helping people, actual people with like science that are applied to organism that you know. Whereas in exoplanets, we like study the very end spectrum of what life is. We ask ourselves, what is life? Like, how do you define it? The big questions. The big questions. <laughs> and we're here to answer some of the big questions. Yeah. I guess on the topic of, of life and the universe, do you believe that there are living organisms out there, not on planet Earth? I would say probably. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's a safe it's a safe bet, yeah. <laughs> if you if you were to ask me if I think that there is any living organism out there right now, maybe, maybe not. If you ask me if there's ever been uh, other living organism, that it's, I would probably say absolutely. I'm glad that's your answer. That's actually exactly how I feel about it, is that the universe has been around for a very long time. So our slice of history is, is relatively short, at least the existence of the human race and like the present day. So excellent point. I agree 100%. <laughs> yeah. But then if you were to ask me a deeper question, like if we were certain that there is life currently uh, outside of Earth, then if you ask me whether we would find it on an exoplanet or in our solar systems, I think we'd probably have a better chance of finding it on our solar system body. Really? Yeah. That's interesting because we've only got like eight planets here. Yeah. With some moons, but there are presumably like hundreds of billions of exoplanets out there. So what makes you feel like our solar system is special? What makes our solar system special other than that we're in it? Um, I think it is exactly because we're in it. I think I think there is more definition to life than what we think it is. We only have a narrow explanation of what life is from, from what we know on Earth, right? So, other... And what is that definition? How do we define life on Earth? Life on Earth right now is just defined as organism who can survive because of the presence of water on these planetary bodies. So for now, we defined a habitable planet uh, as, a, as a planet that can harbor liquid water on its surface. 
And that's our only definition for a habitable planet for now. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't have anything to do with like how much carbon we see there because we're carbon-based life form. It doesn't necessarily have to do with like, I, I mean, I, before I just list a whole bunch of things, maybe you could tell me a little bit about what other criteria, what, what are we trying to study about these exoplanets? What, what information are we interested in? And of course, specifically, what are you interested in knowing about exoplanets? Yeah, there's a lot of big questions in exoplanets and that's, that can come from so many sides. And so you have some people who are interested in, like I said, finding life on other planets. And to find life on other planets, you also have to define what life is. For now, we don't have a good definition, but from an, for an astronomer, what we say is any sort of like chemical disequilibrium that we see in atmospheres that cannot be caused by natural geophysical processes is probably due to some unknown things, probably life. I think this is the current definition, or not definition, the current key that we're looking for when we're looking for life, when we look for life in exoplanets. Um, so changes in chemistry. Yeah, changes in chemistry that we cannot explain from what we understand of geophysics or other planetary uh, science. So what I'm interested in is a little bit different. So I'm interested in more exotic planets. So instead of looking for planets that are habitable, I'm looking at planets that are no way, in no way, shape, or form <laughs> uh, habitable. So at the beginning of my PhD, I focused on these like big planets that we call hot Jupiters. And so we call them hot Jupiters just because they are as big as our Jupiter, for example, but they're located very, very close to their host star. So close that they're like blasted with irradiation from the star. And so on a day side, you can reach temperature that is hot enough to melt rock, for example. So would these hot Jupiters be closer to their host star than, let's say, like Mercury would be to our star? Like Mercury being the closest planet to the sun in our solar system? Yeah, absolutely. So these oh, are wow. way, way, way closer than Mercury. They actually only take less than three days to do a full orbit around the host star. And so a year on this planet is only three days, three days. or three Earth days. <laughs> We could live so many years. We would, we would be hundreds and hundreds of years old. Yeah. Thousands. It, yeah. A lot of people who get into exoplanet, uh, the first thing that they're going to do is probably study a single exoplanet. And it's yeah. probably going to be a hot Jupiter with like a, with an orbital period that is a few days old. And so I'm sure that every single exoplanet astronomers have, you know, on their first like birthday of being a graduate student, mm -hmm. they also calculated their age and like, I don't know, WASP-12b days. Um, and that's something ridiculous, like tens of thousands of years old. Yeah. <laughs> what is it about these hot Jupiters that makes them so good for like novice exoplanet searchers to be studying? Yeah. So the field of exoplanet is really young compared to a lot of astronomy. Probably until like the 90s, people knew that exoplanets or planets on around other stars probably existed just because there were planets around the sun nobody was certain that we would be able to detect them. And so up until like, I think 1995, we didn't know about exoplanets or we didn't know about any discoveries of exoplanets. And then shortly after you and I were born, that's when the first exoplanets were confirmed. And since we've discovered thousands of exoplanets, but now that we have so many exoplanets, uh, the one thing that we really want to do is move beyond just like finding them. We want to know what characterized them. And so we move into an era of characterizing exoplanets. And a lot of the telescopes that are built right now to be able to do this characterization 
weren't built to look at exoplanets. So they don't have the sort of resolution that you need oh. um, to observe exoplanets. So there's a lot of things that we can do on the ground, and that's like building sort of like better software technique to get the signal out. And so we need a lot of tech down here. But ideally, we want you know, a bigger, better telescope that is designed to do solely, uh, or in part, observing exoplanets. Got it. So it's like we're eating a bowl of soup with a fork. Exactly. Yeah. Essentially. So we're not being as efficient in our search. We're not really gobbling up as many exoplanets per bite because a lot of them are just falling through the prongs of the unintentionally exoplanet searching telescopes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. I, I might have stretched that too far. Uh, <laughs> That's great. So I, I do know, actually, because you, you mentioned, and there is a huge telescope project starting very soon, which is the James Webb Space Telescope. And congratulations, by the way, for getting on the short list to start using that ASAP. That's awesome. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the James Webb Space Telescope and how you're going to be using it to do awesome research? Yeah, of course. So the James Webb Space Telescope is sort of a collaboration between the between NASA uh, the Canadian Space Agency and the European Space Agency. So all three space agencies got together to build sort of like the next generation Hubble Space Telescope. So Hubble right now is a, a space telescope that's been operating for decades and it has a mirror and can also get a spectrum of star. But it can only observe these stars in the visible light right now, or UV and visible light. Unfortunately, for characterizing exoplanets, so when you think of characterizing an exoplanet, the first thing that you think of is, what do I see from this exoplanet when I'm looking mm -hmm. at it from above, right? Okay. So you're not living on the planet, you're, li you're looking at it from above, from some kind of telescope. And so the first thing that you see is the atmosphere. And so that's the first thing that we can easily access. Now, the atmosphere of a lot of planets emits in what we call infrared light. And so we don't see a lot of information necessarily from the planet in visible light, but we do see a lot of information in infrared light. And this is not Hubble is not able to do. So we build a telescope that is able to do uh, a lot of infrared astronomy and opening doors to, you know, sort of like a window of information that was not accessible before. On top of this, it's also getting information at different wavelengths. So you can get 3D information from exoplanet by looking at it not only at one wavelength, but at multiple wavelengths at the same time. So right now, you're telling me there, there aren't really any telescopes we have available that are imaging in infrared. So right now, there is currently uh, no telescope that can image in the infrared from space. However, yeah. However, before, uh, up until like last year or so, there was another telescope. So again, sort of like the lesser known cousin of the Hubble Space Telescope, and that's the Spitzer Space Telescope. So the Spitzer Space Telescope was able to look in the infrared, but it was launched, at, I think, back in like the early 2000. So in the early 2000, the mission, when it was designed, it was designed to only last five years. So the, the hard thing about infrared astronomy is it's very difficult to keep your telescope very cold because heat also emits in the infrared. And you don't want to cloud uh, your, your observation with the heat from your own telescope, right? So what we do is each of these like infrared telescope have some coolant and this coolant is going to keep the telescope mm. cold enough. And that was only budgeted for probably five years. And after five years, it ran out of coolant. That's so crazy that we have that limitation. Like 
there's coolant in my fridge, right? This isn't like a crazy technology that's like really hard to find coolant. I'm sure we have many, many gallons on Earth. Yeah. Can we not like send up a coolant refill? So, so that's a very good question. Unfortunately, you cannot replenish it. You can't access uh, a space telescope once you send it in space, except for Hubble. Hubble was the only exception. Um, Ooh. Yeah. What does Hubble have that lets us access it so post-launch? Yeah, so Hubble is on a geocentric orbit. So it's on an orbit that is orbiting around Earth. And the Spitzer Space Telescope was sent on what we call an Earth-trailing orbit. So instead of orbiting around Earth, is orbiting on the same orbit that Earth is, is taking to, to go around the sun. Okay. Um, the only thing is that it's, it's trailing behind. So every year, the distance between Spitzer and, uh, and the Earth kind of like gets larger and larger. Yeah. And I think in a couple of years from now, Spitzer is going to be on the other side of the sun. Oh, well, that's, that's far. Yeah. I know it's like 150 million kilometers from the Earth to the sun. So it's on the other side. We're talking twice that. We're talking 300 million kilometers. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wait. Yep. And it costs a lot of money to put things in space, so we're not going to just drive a bunch of coolant up there. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, one thing that we could do is, like, wait another 25 years for, like, it to trail enough back to Earth, and then, like, maybe we can capture it. But by Yeah, then... we don't want to wait. <laughs> we're here. We got James Webb. We're ready to go. Infrared, here we come. Yeah, exactly. So the James Webb Space Telescope, it's sort of like a, a like the happy union between the Hubble Space Telescope and the Spitzer Space Telescope. So you get the infrared capability of Spitzer, and you get the spectroscopic uh, capability of Hubble, and you match them together. And we didn't want to call it SpitHub, right? That wasn't really... Yeah, no. <laughs> no, we didn't want to do that. Uh, I, okay. I think both the Spitzer family and the Hubble family would be, I don't know, not happy about yeah. it. Yeah, SpitHub wasn't a, wasn't a contender for the name. <laughs> we just chose James Webb and called it a day. Yeah. Okay. Funny thing about names of telescope, though. Um, uh -huh. So the Hubble Space Telescope was named before the launch. And the Spitzer family, before the, sp the Space Telescope was launched, didn't want to have the name of the family associated with a failed mission. And so what they asked is... Um, the space telescope was called something else. I think it was like the Space Infrared Telescope Facility when it launched. And then mm. after it successfully launched, that's when it changed to name to Spitzer. Because the family was sure that this like telescope was working, uh, was uh -huh. in space and operative. That's so funny. So they wanted to keep a safe distance until they knew that their name wouldn't be tarnished. Yep, exactly. That's, that's smart. These Spitzers know what they're doing. <laughs> Fair enough. So... You're going to be using the James Webb Space Telescope to be observing, what exactly, of the exoplanets? Yeah. What's next for you? So I'm not looking at hot Jupiters, even though a lot of hot Jupiters are going to be observed with the James Webb Space Telescope. What I'm moving towards now is smaller planets, so still extremely hot like hot Jupiters, uh, but instead of being as big as Jupiter, I'm looking at planets that are more like Earth size. Um, mm -hmm. So you can think of, instead of like a big ball of gas, I'm looking at a small piece of rock, or I don't know, relatively small piece of rock, uh, that is so close to the star that instead of taking three days to go around the star, it takes only six hours. So not only it takes <laughs> six only six hours. Six okay, hours. Well. So this planet is called K2141b. It doesn't have a great name, but it's named after uh, the K2 mission. So you've heard of the Kepler Space Telescope or the Kepler mission? I have. You want to just tell me a bit about what that's about? 
Yeah, so the Kepler mission was a planet finder mission. And so the goal of the mission was to find exoplanet via a method that we call transit. And so if a planet is orbiting a star and the orientation of the orbit is just right such that the planet passes in front of the star and blocks some of the light from the star when it does that, then what you see as an observer who is looking with a camera like the Kepler mission, you would see sort of like a dimming in the brightness of the star just for a short moment. And then gotcha. once it passes away from the star, then the brightness goes back to normal. And if it does this many times and sort of like over a consistent period or sort of like periodically at the same time, then you can assume that there is a planet and you know some properties of this planet. So this is what the Kepler mission did. The Kepler mission was surveying nearby stars in the galaxy in order to look for these transiting planets and found thousands of these transiting exoplanets. Fascinating. Yeah. So we found thousands of exoplanets with the transit method. Yeah. And then we also found this planet called K2141b. Is that what you're working on now? Yeah. Ooh, okay. Tell me about K2141b. Let's hear it. Yeah. So K2141b is a planet, like I said, rocky planet, super close to the host star, so close that it can get a temperature of like 2,000 or 3,000 degrees. And so at okay. these temperature, again, you're, it's so hot that the planet is going to have sort of like a pool of uh, magma on the surface. So now you're, you're, we're no longer talking about, you know, warm enough to have water on the surface uh, of this planet. It's warm enough to like melt the rock on the surface and melting all these continents until you get magma oceans. So we call these lava planets. <laughs> lava. It sounds like a video game. Like it doesn't even sound like this is like a real universe thing that exists, but it does. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even sound like it's it's possible. But I think that's what I like so much about these exoplanets is that it's like these data are me are letting us imagine new worlds that otherwise I would have never imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is the stuff of like imagination, like science fiction. Yeah, magma planets with with like oceans of magma swirling on the surface. Uh, yeah. I mean, and not only not only that, so the planet is so close to the star, as you get closer to the star, you can imagine that our sun would get sort of bigger because you're getting closer to it, right? Uh-huh. And so on this planet, their sun is so big that it's taking like two thirds of the sky <laughs> or something crazy like this. Okay, like if you're on the surface, if you're kind of uh, splashing around in the magma oceans, yeah. <laughs> K2141b holiday, then you'd be looking up at the sky and well... They tell you not to look at the sun on Earth because you might hurt your eyes, but I would imagine you would really hurt your eyes if you could maintain life. Oh, yeah. No, you would definitely really hurt your eye. You'd probably be, be like, grilling on <laughs> between the magma and, like, by by the star as well. <laughs> yeah, what would be hotter, actually, the magma or the, like, the heat that you'd feel from the sun at that distance? Because I know that, like, the surface of our sun is, like, about 10,000 degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how hot would that be? Uh, I don't know. You probably wouldn't feel tens of thousands of degrees from the sun because you'll, you're not going to be on the surface of the sun. Right. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, this planet is so close exactly that you're, it's sometimes in the atmosphere of the sun. So that's another, <laughs> another crazy phenomenon that's happening there. But that's exactly one of the questions that I'm trying to answer with these James Webb Space Telescope. So what I'm trying to do with the James Webb Space Telescope is I want to observe this planet for the entirety of its period. So as it's orbiting around the star, I'm going to take a photo at every sort of like few seconds Mm -hmm. as it's orbiting around the star. And so from this, I'm going to build sort of a map of this planet 
in multiple wavelengths. And so I'm, with these, I'm going to try to answer what the temperature of the surface at different location is and what the temperature of the atmosphere is at different location and what kind of gas or molecule do you have um, at all these locations as well. How far away is uh, K2141b? Oh, I don't remember. Probably a couple of hundreds of light years. Um, so okay. in, in terms of astronomy, that's not too far, but still far. It's like our neighborhood. Yeah, it's like a neighborhood, but it might, you know, take more than a lifetime to, to get there. If it's 100 light years and you're a photon, that's a whole human life right yep, there. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. So what are you expecting to find then? Obviously, these are these are crazy sounding planets that we're talking about with, with magma oceans. Mm-hmm. Presumably, we've found other of these rocky Earth-sized planets before. Are you expecting to find similar conditions? And what are those conditions even on these planets in terms of like the climate and the atmosphere? Yeah, so not surprisingly, we haven't found too many of these lava worlds. They're still sort of like, I wouldn't say difficult to find, but they're rare. And so one thing that we're trying to to do with this with these observations or to, to try to understand with these observations, all that I'm describing so far about these lava planets is solely based on what we know about the temperature that this planet might have, right? So we're sort of like speculating a lot of things. Based on this temperature, it should have a magma oceans. Now there's a lot of questions that are still remaining, like does it have an atmosphere? At these temperature, you can imagine that it's so hot that whatever atmosphere of hydrogen or helium or water would have probably evaporated by now. And so we don't know whether these planets even have an atmosphere. If it does, we think that it's probably um, sort of like evaporation of the rock from the magma pool. So one of the things about these planets is that they're tidally locked, or we think that they are tidally locked. This means that one of the hemisphere of the planet is always facing the star, and one of the hemisphere of the planet is never facing the star. So that's the situation we have right now with the moon and Earth. Like, we only ever see one face of the moon. Yeah, exactly. And of course, we all know on the dark side, that's where the aliens are. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. So this Moving is... Moving forward. <laughs> yeah. So here you have one side of the planet that is always facing the star. And so this side gets really, really hot because it's, mm-hmm. you know, getting heated up. And then you have the night side. So that's the side that's never facing the star. And you can ask yourself, what happens there? How cold is it or how warm is it? Um, Mm. And these are different questions that can be answered uh, with different hypotheses. So if you have an atmosphere, an atmosphere is a good way to move heat from the day side to the night side. You can have sort of like flows of material. Sure. If you don't have an atmosphere, it's difficult to know what's happening here. One thing that we think is happening is... The difference in temperature between the two, we think, is thousands of degrees. And so you could have, yeah, so sort of like on the day side, you could have this like evaporation of lava. But once you get to the night side, it might be cold enough for it to rain down and kind of like solidified in the back. Magma rain? Magma rain. (laughs) Magma rain. That is is a great band name. (laughs) Exactly. Please welcome to the stage. Magma rain. A lot of, I think a lot of like, you know, if any, any musician is looking for inspiration, you should go on like any of these like proposal list of NASA telescopes and just like look for titles. I think a lot of them, you'll find like elements that make great band names. That's, that's crazy. Um, I, I didn't actually get to ask before about what kind of funky things happen on these hot Jupiters. We've got magma oceans and then magma rain, which are both great. Love them both. Mm-hmm. What kind of funky things happen on these hot Jupiters? On these hot Jupiters, at first, we thought they were 
uh, boring, or we didn't think that they were boring. We think that they were simple, uh, which made it very easy for us to understand them. Again, I go back to this analogy of, you know, physicists think of the world as a very simplified thing. And so hot Jupiters was the very first things that people model, but also the very first thing that people uh, looked at and characterized. And that's because when they're big, they are also so close to their host star that we think they're tidally locked. So again, one side that is facing the sun, the other side that is not facing the sun. And so when you have this sort of like stable, what we call irradiation on the planet, then there's not a lot of like weather that should be going on, right? You have a steady state planet. So one side of the planet is always receiving the same amount of, uh, of flux. And then once the other side is not. On Earth, it's kind of different, right? You have the rotation of the Earth that is changing how much energy we get from the sun and whatnot. And that causes, you know, a lot of flows and, and weather and clouds and whatnot. So it's the rotation of the Earth that produces changing weather systems. Partly. So the rotation okay. of Earth is also, you know, contributing to the Coriolis force. And that also creates a bunch of different uh, dynamics in, in the atmosphere. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so there's no there's no magma rain on uh, hot Jupiters. We don't know. So at first we didn't think of clouds when we thought of of these planets. We just thought of them as as being these like simple model. And so at first we didn't include clouds because they made our models too complicated. And now we're sort of like moving in a regime where our data and our observation, especially with James Webb, are going to be precise enough to detect sort of like molecules and maybe clouds and other species. And so before we used to discard them because we told ourselves, oh, our telescope are not powerful enough to, to observe these. But now we're like, okay, our telescope are going to be powerful enough and we have to think about clouds. So there's entire conferences where a lot of scientists just get together and try to learn as much cloud physics as they can. That's amazing. I, I never really thought about like looking for clouds in other parts of the galaxy you know we're all we're all focused on life and finding actual planets but once you find those planets i wouldn't have thought that clouds would be a focus yeah but i guess that plays into the climate plays into the atmosphere yeah, yeah it plays into the atmosphere clouds is is a good way of, of keeping infrared or, or thermal energy in a planet so it's a good way of influencing the entire atmosphere of the planet mm-hmm you mentioned tidal locking before. How does that happen? Is it purely a result of just two two celestial bodies being very close, or is there something else at play here? So, no, it's exactly because two bodies are very close together. So they sort of like interact gravitationally. And I don't want to go too much into details, but sure. sort of in general, because of the tidal force that they exert on one onto another, they become tidally locked. That's why we call it tidal locking. So there's a force, a tidal force. Yeah, it's a force. Operates at close distances. Yeah, it operates strongest at close distances. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like most forces, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. I do want to ask, uh, this is maybe a little bit off topic, but it still has to do with an exoplanet. It's actually a whole, an exosolar system. We discovered something called the TRAPPIST system yeah. in the last few years. Do you know anything about this? And can you shed some light on what kind of exoplanets we find in that solar system? Yeah. So the TRAPPIST system was a very exciting discovery. So I remember sort of going to one of my first exoplanet meeting. And then one of the professors at University of Montreal was telling us about their French and Belgian colleagues finding about an Earth-sized planet that was like at the same temperature as Venus. And so that was sort of the first detection of an Earth analog. 
And so people were, were really excited. And then these European astronomers, since they, they knew that this system was, was special, they started looking at it and then found two other planets. So by the end of that summer in 2016, three planets around the TRAPPIST-1 system was found. So with these three planets, that's when the buzz started going around the TRAPPIST planet. So the TRAPPIST planet was uh, exciting for many reasons. One of them is because we found a planet around what we call an M star. So these M star are um, smaller stars than the than our sun, for example. So it's a star that is smaller, and therefore it's less energetic. There is less heat coming from the star, and so the habitable zone of this uh, of this star is not at a distance like the one that we have between Earth and the sun, for example. It's much closer, and so the habitable planets of these stars are going to be much closer than Earth. So instead of looking for a planet that has a period of a year, you're looking for planets that have periods of maybe tens of days only. Um, so it makes it much easier for us to find these planets because we don't have to stare at a system for an entire year in order to find a planet. But rather, we can just like stare at it for about a month and we saw it, you know, transited twice. That's extremely efficient. Yeah, that sounds like the best thing to observe. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like the best thing to observe. And that was really one of the first like time that people were really investing into looking at habitable planets around these M star. And so the Trappist planet was making buzz because it was one of the first habitable planets around these M stars that we found. But little did we know, these uh, European astronomers also applied for time on the Spitzer Space Telescope and they said something outrageous. They were like, we want 500 hours where the Spitzer Space Telescope is going to stare at the system only, just so we can get better constrained at the th these three planets that we found from the telescope that we have on Earth. And when the data came back, after a lot of analysis, not only they found the transits of all of these three planets and were able to constrain the period of the planet, but they found four others. Uh, exoplanets and so it's a planet <laughs> yeah so it's seven pl seven planets seven planet so not only did we find like an earth analog but we kind of found like a solar system analog because we've got eight yeah they've got seven yeah that's crazy it's it's almost like a like a like a solar system analog it was the first time that we found uh, a system with more planets than just like two or three um, mm -hmm. So now we knew that maybe, you know, the solar system was in such a crazy system. Um, but not only this, the one thing that was very particular about the Trappist system is that all seven planets were Earth-like. And so all of them were <laughs> properties that were kind of like, like analogs of Earth. So they were all rocky. And so you have the closest one that are hot enough for, you know, water to evaporate fully. You have a couple of them that are in the habitable zone. And then you have some of them that are further away, and they, they're either tidally locked, but with glacier on one side and liquid water on one side. Or then you have, like, these planets that are just too cold and they're frozen balls. Please tell me this thing is, like, really close. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Again, I think it's, like, close enough for us to, to be able to observe them very well, but, you know, not to get there in a lifetime. Uh -huh. So if you wanted, you know, maybe you're, like grandchildren will be able to get there by the time you leave earth now yeah oh, we can dream that's a mate no it's just what a great way to like pull everything together today so not only are you staring out into the galaxy and observing planets and their atmospheres and their climates and the magma 
But we're also using different methods like the transits and then we can actually find planets that seem like they're kind of like our own. And then we can find solar systems that are kind of like our own. Maybe there are also galaxies out there that look just like our galaxy. Maybe it's just one large cosmic mirror reflecting back everything in our own galactic neighborhood. Yeah, we're all kind of the same but different or something like this. Same, same, but different. Wow. I have one final question for you. Yeah. What is the absolute best part of being an exoplanet researcher? Um, it really feels like I'm in a science fiction book all the time, uh, just because, <laughs> you know, the way I talk about these planets, it's almost like any scientific piece of writing that I do is also almost like science fiction writing. So mm -hmm. I'm always taking both my scientists and my audience into a journey of space exploration as if we were going to explore it together, uh, more than like, this is the science question I'm trying to answer. So the best thing is not only is it exhilarating time to be an exoplaneteer right now uh, because of the James Webb and, and all of these like new discoveries, but also it's telling a story all the time. It doesn't feel like work because it's, it feels like I'm, you know, my hobby is writing now. That's amazing. I love it. it. There's nothing that brings more joy to me than hearing about graduate researchers just absolutely loving what they're doing. Because <laughs> it can be a slog. It can be really difficult. But knowing that the overarching feeling is, is positive, music to my music to my ears. Oh, that's that's good. I mean, I don't feel like this most days, right? Most of the time I like pull my hair out trying trying to understand <laughs> my data. Uh, but it's good to talk about it with people that are not necessarily in my field. That's like the moments where I feel the most enlightened about my research is when I make it cool again for someone to digest it. <laughs> this was definitely very cool. And you've you've had a smile on your face the entire time. So I love it. I've I've had a smile the vast majority of the time unless I was really trying to listen intently to figure out what exactly you're talking about. Yeah. So this was great. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being on the show, for sharing your knowledge with me and with the listeners. Honestly, just an absolute blast talking about this beautiful universe that is surrounding us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jeremy. This was a blast. This was really fun to talk to you and, and fun to have you listen. I always love being a listener. Thanks so much again, Lisa, and have a great afternoon. Thanks, Jeremy. Hey, so you might have noticed that there was a bit of a different format to today's episode. I had my guest introduce herself and I omitted the break in the middle. I'm curious to know what you think about this new format. I want to make the episodes as streamlined as possible and work with whatever feedback I get from you lovely, lovely listeners. So you know where to reach me, abstractcast at gmail.com, on Instagram at abstractcast, on Twitter at abstract underscore cast, and at facebook.com slash abstractcast. For the time being, you've got an all-access pass to over 50 episodes of Abstract and 10 rap tracks from Rapstract. Bye-bye.